This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 278th episode of Awards Chatter the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today in his first ever podcast interview is one of the biggest TV and movie stars of our time. A brilliant actor, writer, director, and producer who also happens to be smart, handsome, and charming. All reasons why he has been a member of Hollywood's A-list for the last 25 years. George Clooney. Clooney, who just turned 58, made his name on NBC's ER from 1994 through 1998, and then transitioned to the big screen, starring in projects such as 1998's Out of Sight, 1999's Three Kings, 2000's The Perfect Storm, and Oh Brother Where Art Thou, 2001's Ocean's Eleven, and its 2004 and 2007 sequels, 2005's Syriana, 2007's Michael Clayton, 2009's Up in the Air, 2011's The Descendants and The Ides of March, and 2013's Gravity. He also directed and played smaller parts in 2002's Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and 2005's Good Night and Good Luck, and he produced 2012's Argo and 2013's August Osage County. Most recently, he served as an executive producer, director, and star of the six-part limited series Catch-22, the latest adaptation of Joseph Heller's classic satirical novel, which will debut on Hulu on May 17th. Over the course of our conversation at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, Clooney and I discussed his unlikely path from the tobacco fields of Kentucky to full-fledged Hollywood stardom and the pros and cons of the level of fame he attained along the way, how he wound up in the film roles that he did and why he eventually gravitated toward producing and directing as well, what he learned from his biggest mistakes, not least among them agreeing to play Batman in the 1997 bomb Batman and Robin, why he decided to return to TV for the first time since ER with Catch-22, and why this material, which was first adapted for the screen by Mike Nichols in 1970, merits a revisitation nearly a half century later, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. George, thank you so much for joining us. It's a treat to have you on the podcast. It's fun to be here. Well, we always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? And I know that in your case, it was really sort of in the in the family. You said the quote in, in one thing I read, quote, the whole family was like a vaudeville act, close quote. We sort of. My, my father started out as a television newsman, and then he ended up doing, in the era of 
Mike Douglas and you know daytime variety shows. He did a variety show for about ten years, and since we couldn't afford a babysitter, my sister and I worked on the show and we did live commercials, you know, for Hussman's potato chips and yes. things like that. And then he went back to the news, uh, anchoring the news for another twenty-five years, and has had a really wonderful career. Yes. And so we were a traveling family from Kentucky. Now some people may wonder where the where the charm and the the humor and all of that comes from. I know that he's probably a, a part of that, but also I read about it. I was kind of amazed to read about something that happened when you were a freshman in high school that sort of forced you to learn how to deflect and, oh. you know, have some fun. So can, can yeah, you I got, share? I got, you're talking about belt, yes. belt palsy? Yeah, that's a, it's a really bad thing to get your first year of high school because <laughs> <laughs> half your face is paralyzed. And it's that way for, it was that way for six, seven months. Ugh. It was funny. I remember we were in church up in the balcony, the Catholic mass. And we just, my dad and I just watched the movie Pride of the Yankees. Yes. And I was sitting in church and my tongue and my cheek felt numb. And then we went out to Bob's Big Boy. It was called Frisch's Big Boy there. And, the, and we were drinking and all the milk started pouring out of my mouth. Oh. And I thought, oh my God, I've got Lou Gehrig's disease because that's what I'd <laughs> yes. just seen. And uh, we ended up in the doctors and, the, and ended up having Bell's palsy. It, it does make it awkward for your first year in high school. But I also went to a very small high school, 23 people in my graduating class. So, you know, you can sort of deflect a lot. Yes. Now, when you were finishing up with high school, preparing to head out to either college or the real world or whatever, it seems like you were a very good baseball player and there was a chance that was going to be the the path. Instead, you ended up at college for a few years. What was that time like? Well, I, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. Yeah. And I remember that at the time I was growing up, the Big Red Machine, yes. Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench. I mean, it was really like one of the great baseball teams yeah. of all time. And we could go to, you know, you'd go to 30 or 40 games a year because if you got good grades, they gave you tickets yes. at the time, which was pretty great. And I played baseball, you know, four years in varsity baseball. And I went to two of these Reds tryouts. And I always thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. I only lacked skill. <laughs> I only lacked talent. If I had that, I would have really, because I had the hat, right? you know, and a proper outfit. And then uh, I sort of wandered around. I sold ladies' shoes at a store called McAlpin's, and I sold men's suits. And then I, I cut tobacco every summer for $3.33 an hour mm -hmm. for a period of time. And, you know, I worked at an all-night liquor store called King Quick Liquor. <laughs> and so I, I got a good taste of uh, what I didn't want to do in my life. Yes. And then my cousin Miguel and his father, Jose Ferrer, came to Kentucky to do a movie called End They're Off. Never came out. Jose, I think the first would it be Hispanic descent actor to win an Oscar. I, I think that's right, yeah, yeah. for Cyrano. Yeah. And they came to do this horse racing movie down at Keeneland Racetrack, which is this beautiful racetrack. Mm -hmm. And it's about an hour and a half from where I was. So I drove down there, and I spent three months on a set. And Miguel said, you got to come out and be an actor. And I was like, okay. So I waited through tobacco season, which was the, the cutting of tobacco, which is where you can actually make some money. Mm -hmm. And once I got through that, I got in the car and drove out to California. I guess at that point, so it's, it's like 1982, you have probably a, a sort of like a crazy experience because on the one hand, you're living for a while, at least, I think, with your aunt, Rosemary Clooney, right? For about five months. Yeah. Five months. She kicked me out. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, yeah, you're, you're, you, I guess the car didn't last for very long. Well, yeah, I, I, it was a 76 Monte Carlo with covered in rust. I can show you the picture. It doesn't help your podcast, but the picture <laughs> will make you laugh. And then 
it died just, you know, I never turned it off driving out right. to LA because I was afraid it was going <laughs> to never start again. And then when I got there, it died, of course. And so I got a bicycle. And from where I was living in a, in a closet, the floor of a closet of my best friend's apartment, and I'd ride a bicycle to auditions, which is, you'd show up pretty grimy. But, yes. You know, it was fun, though. Well, so I guess, you know, there, there was a famous acting teacher who I think has passed away, Milton Katsalas. Sure. And you were one of his students, mm-hmm. along with somebody named Grant Heslov, as, yeah. as I understand it, yeah. who this will all come back around when we get to Catch-22. But how did you guys sort of get to know each other and why do you think you hit it off? Well, it's a funny thing. We hit it off. We were in acting class. We did a scene from Brighton Beach Memoirs in class and he was 19 and I was 21. And he just, his first job, his first big job, none of us had worked. Grant got a job on Happy Days and then a job on Johnny Loves Chachi. And he made, I think, 1100 bucks on each and he loaned me 100 bucks to get headshots because I didn't have any money. And I got the headshots, which I still use, as you know, Scott. <laughs> and we just always got along. We never, we've never had an argument in, you know, 37 years of yeah. working together. We're very close. We live walking distance from one another. And, you know, to go from that where it was just starting out and just trying to get acting jobs and right. just trying to work in anything, you know, and broke, broke couldn't, we couldn't have been more broke for about four or five years. Mm-hmm. To go from that to... You know, standing on the stage at the Oscars, the last for the last award. That's a very significant thing for two friends to be able to do. And in fact, I think as your own TV career began progressing, I think it was for an ABC audition. I had read that he then you brought him along to do the Brighton Beach memoir, same scene. So, okay, so we should say that prior to ER, yeah. You did, I believe, seven TV series, 13 pilots. You're making a pretty decent living, but yeah. this was not what you wanted to be doing from what I... It seems well, like you thought you were... You want to be a film actor. Well, every actor wants to be a film actor, right? <laughs> so every actor will do... When you when you were doing a TV series, you would go, well, you know, I'm doing a TV series, but really I'm a film actor. And then the <laughs> film actors would say, well, I'm doing a film, but really I'm a theater actor. You know, and really I'm a New York actor instead of an L.A. actor. You know, it's all... Everything has a pecking order to it. But... It was more about trying to do quality right. stuff because I was doing, I did a show called Baby Talk, mm-hmm. which is a pretty bad show. <laughs> I did a show called Sunset Beat where I played an undercover cop on a Harley during the day and a rock star at night. You know, <laughs> I did some pretty bad shows and I was pretty bad in them. I'm not blaming the shows any more than myself. So I knew at some point I was going to have to do better work. And then I got a show called Sisters that was actually gave me something to do a little bit. And I was on the Warner Brothers lot under contract to Warner Brothers. And then ER came around. And that's sort of that's a life changer. But I think, you know, it's a good maybe lesson for any aspiring actor or anybody else that, you know, it came around. But it came around because it sounds like you made a point of familiarizing yourself with what was coming up on the lot. You I chased I (laughs) I went to the casting offices on the lot every single day and I hound, you know, Gerald Dean Leader and and all these casting directors, John Levy, and I just go, give me the next script, let me see the next script, and, and finally ER came around. So yeah, but look, again, it was a great script, it's beautifully done, and also we got the sweetest time slot in the world, and it, you know, we were originally slotted for Friday night at 10, and that wouldn't have been the same thing. We got the slot that was L.A. Law and Hill Street Blues slot. And, TV. and it was it changed everything for us. Just in case there's anyone who was living under a rock throughout the 90s and or hasn't 
caught up or whatever. Dr. Doug Ross, pediatrician at Chicago's County General (laughs) Memorial Hospital, has a way with the ladies as well as with medical issues. I wanted to ask you, did you immediately recognize the potential for that character to be a vehicle to, first of all, good things on that show, but also to things beyond? Well, first of all, I knew I had one advantage, which was, you know how the Golden Girls could get away with anything because they were old ladies? (laughs) So they could say funky things that you wouldn't, if young people said them, the censors would stop you. Well, I got to be you know, this character that was constantly like hitting on women, (laughs) but I was a pediatrician. And so in the very first show, you know, the last scene, I'm like, you know, how dare you touch that child? And, you know, once you say, how dare you touch that child, you can do pretty much anything. And people go, well, he loves kids. And so it really did sort of open it up for me to be able to sort of be a little bit of a rogue and still have some grounding people still cared about you. And also on that show, Juliana and I had the love story and whoever has a love story has an advantage, you know, she's also, I mean, being able to work with Jules over those years was one of the most rewarding and fun things. We were really dear friends. But, you know, again, Jack Nicholas said a line once, he sunk like a 60-foot putt, and somebody said, lucky putt. And he goes, yeah, it's amazing. The more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> it required a tremendous amount of luck. Now, some of that luck you can create, being available, working hard, making sure you don't take bad jobs at some point, all those things. And, and at that point, it was a risk you know, because I was broke. But later in life, you know, you still needed the time slot. You still needed the show to be good. You still needed all these other wonderful things to happen for it to work out. Well, I wonder in the course of that show, that first season where it became TV's most watched drama, 40 million viewers at some points when today nobody comes within half of that. Oh, no. How quickly and in what ways did your life change? You weren't unknown before, but not really known. I, I think I was mostly known from the Facts of Life about 10 years earlier. And I only had a few, you know, I only did like 15 episodes of that show. But yeah, no one knew your name, right? They kind of sometimes would know your character name, that kind of thing. It was almost instantaneous. And it's also one of those things that never happens, where Chicago Hope was coming out the same night, Thursday night on CBS, hospital show with Mandy Patinkin. And everyone picked them to just clobber us. And we doubled them. And that was a shock because it was mostly unknown actors. So within, I think, a month, we were on the cover of Newsweek. I mean, everything changed so quickly. And I remember shooting on the streets of Chicago because we'd go do exteriors. And people knew our actual names. Hey, Tony Edwards, you know, hey, Noah Wiley, Eric LaSalle. And once they knew your name, you thought, wow, things have really changed. And it happened very quickly then. How did you process that? that is that exciting, scary? Sure. Well, you got to remember... You know, that kind of fame is, it's like a bug light, right? All actors, and they can say, well, I just wanted to work. You chase that kind of recognition because that's, it affords you the ability to do all the other things I've been able to do in my life, right? But it is like a bug light because when you get that close, it really will scorch you. And so there was that first moment of like, wow, this is great. You know, I'm going to be able to do this. First thing that happened was they picked the show up right away. Uh for a second season, and we really knew we'd probably have a five-year career. And when you're an actor, that's unheard of, right? You mean a five-year guarantee that you're going to yeah. be working? Yeah, I had a series for five yes. years that I was going to yes. work, and I was making, you know, $25,000 yeah. yeah. a show, and it was just, it felt like I'm going to be able to pay for the house, yes. you know? Yes. I'm going to be all right. 
And so that's that was the huge, you know, for actors, any kind of security. Because, listen, I have to tell you, and, and I think I, w- I saw Don Cheadle last yeah. night, and I saw Matt Damon last night, and they would tell you the same thing. Wherever you are in your career, when the last job stops, you think, well, maybe that's it. That's it. Maybe it won't work again. Right. And it just is, it's in your, your mind that way. So that was a big relief. But then the then came choices. And your mentality is still an actor, right? Take a job. Somebody offers you a job, take a job. And so I first, when I was branching out into films, I was like, well, take a job, you know? And when I got a call to play Batman and Robin, you know, I, I'm not kidding. It was like, I called all my friends. I go, going to be the next Batman, you know, and we all <laughs> oh, we're screamed. coming to that. <laughs> uh, uh, well, and, but it changed everything for me for sure. in, in a lot of ways. Well, so the first inkling, though, that you could transfer this now sudden stardom from ER into film work, which is what you'd always hope to do. Sure. It seems like uh, I read one thing where Spielberg visited the set and and watched you on a monitor. Did he have any yeah, comments? He said, yeah, he said, if you hold your head still, you'll be a movie star, <laughs> which is pretty funny. And then the actual, though, I mean, the thing that was pretty amazing was that, you know, the show's doing really well. And what often happens is people say, who have broken through on TV, I'm working 16 hour days, five days a week. Yeah. I am getting sense. offers to go do films. I'm going to get out of my current contract. And I think it was kind of very admirable that you said, ER is what put me on the map. I'm going to honor the entirety of the contract. And then, you know, I'll do films during my hiatuses, but I'm not going to try to weasel out of the deal. No. Well, I'll say this. First of all, you know, I got there because of that show. There's another thing that happened that I think people don't wouldn't fully understand unless you could be in that moment, which is the year before that was NYPD Blue. Oh, yes. And David Caruso left the show after a year. And he was sued, and it was a big thing, and he wanted to have a film career, which is, you know, it happens. Mm-hmm. So what happened the next year when I sort of broke out, I'd gotten offered from Dust Till Dawn, and it was going to go a little bit into the schedule of the second season, beginning of the second season of ER, meaning that I'd have to work seven days a week and I could only work four days on the show instead of five, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it required them to bend over backwards, the show to bend over backwards. And at that point before, if you remember, Pierce Brosnan couldn't get off of of his show to do Bond and there was all kinds of issues. That all changed when David did that because it, you know it was a very damaging thing I think to him. He was banned from television and films were tougher for him. But for me, all of these guys kept saying, "You're not going to leave the show, are you?" Which was never a question up until that. And I was like, "No, of course I'm not going to leave the show." But because of what happened, they sort of were like, "Well, if you want to, if you want a week off to go do that, that's a fine. Accommodating, so yeah. there was a little more accommodation that w- w- did not exist before that. And that first sort of major film project from Dust Till Dawn came about because Quentin, who was working with Robert Rodriguez on that, guest directed something on guest ER. directed on ER. Yeah. And he, I guess, was one of the people that early on believed that, I guess it was, mu- it took a mutual gamble because you're saying I'm going to go do a vampire yeah. film. It's a very big departure from what you're doing. I know, but it's not a big gamble. Remember this. This is, that's the year that Quentin had Pulp Fiction come out and Robert Rodriguez had, I can't remember which film, but he, it was, he was really on, both guys were on fire and it was going to be Harvey Keitel and Juliette Lewis and I mean, really wonderful actors. And I got a great part. And yeah, it's a nutty film. But honestly, that's still a huge break for me. You, I mean, you can imagine. Just to show that you can do other things. Just to, Not just to show you can do other things. To do something that's such a departure from what I was doing. Right. And to work with the people who were the hottest people in, in yes. film at that point. 
the next few years after that, it seems like you were doing movies that were almost feeling out what would be the type of film actor you would be. Because in that period, we've got a rom-com, One Fine Day, we've got a thriller, The Peacemaker, on and on and on. But then, as you mentioned, or as you referred to a a few minutes ago, Mm -hmm. along comes Joel Schumacher and Batman and Robin. And you have said that you learn more from the failure of that film than from any success. And so I guess I wonder, why did you agree to do it in the first place? And then what did you learn from the, the hiccup of okay, it? Okay, so so take it, again, go back to the idea that you're just an actor, right. right? And your mentality is still, I'm just an actor, even though after a few films and after the show, what you don't understand is now they're using you to, not for Batman and Robin, but for other films, they're using you to greenlight films. Right. So you have to think differently than just an actor. You have to think, well, if they're going to greenlight these films, then I'm responsible for the films. So suddenly I was being held responsible for Batman and Robin, for instance. You know, Schwarzenegger was paid, I I think he was paid $25 million for that, you know, which is like 20 times more than I was paid for it. And, you know, we never even worked together. We worked together for one day. But I took all the heat. Now, fair deal. I, I, I was playing Batman, and I, and I wasn't good in it. It wasn't a good film. But what I learned from that failure was that I had to rethink how I was working. Because now I wasn't just an actor getting a role. I was being held responsible for the film itself. So I wasn't being reviewed for what I did as much as what the film was. That's a George Clooney film. Well, yeah. And, and that's been something of my career since then. Yeah. So... The next three films I did yes. were Three Kings, Out of Sight, yep. and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So that was a, ch- a, a very specific choice for me to find better projects and work on better projects. And, and starting with the script. Yeah. Well, because, again, you can really easily make a bad movie out of a good script. Yes. There's a lot of people that are very capable of doing that. <laughs> but you cannot make a good film out of a bad script. Right. And, and the lesson you learn is, you know, when you're just an actor, you take a bad script, you don't care. I got a great part. Right. So going through, just quickly, that period of now emerging from yeah. where some people might have written you off. Sure. I mean, out of sight, your first time with Soderbergh, you guys were both kind of on the ropes at that point. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, did you feel it was a make or break moment? Why did you guys head it off to the extent that you would then form a production company company together? Just all of that. Well, first of all, Steven was coming off of The Underneath and that wasn't a big hit for him. And he needed a a break. Mm -hmm. And Danny DeVito's company was producing. We met over Danny's house. And there were a couple of other directors attached to it who walked away when I was offered it because they said I wasn't a film star. Jesus. You know, it's true. That's okay. Fair enough. That's that, that's how, you know, that, that was the way they, they thought about it. Um, but interestingly, Stephen came in and, you know, I still had such respect for him for the films he'd done. And he had a really good take on it. He wanted to sort of reintroduce the kind of independent film that he was making into the studio structure, which had been lost since the mid-70s, really, since, you know, you know, All the President's Men and, and Parallax yeah. and that kind of thing, and Three Days of the Condor, yes. even more specifically. So his take was great. We both needed a break. We didn't think our careers were over because we were both working. Yeah. But we both also were very well aware that this was a great script. It was a great part. He's a terrific director. And then afterwards, you know, Stephen and I became friends because... The way he was as a director and his talent for me was exceptional and taught me a lot about storytelling 
and how clean it can be and how smart if you're if you know how to shoot with a point of view and he I think liked me as an actor because I didn't think as an actor that by that point I was looking at the whole so yeah. it was like well I'm not going to cry in this scene because I'm going to cry four right. seasons you know right. so I was able to look at it more of a and so we we hit it off really well. We're friends, you know. And we should just say that Section Eight, which you guys had for about five years, I think, I together. Did. You had had a production company before that. Yeah, it wasn't much. And then you had one, obviously, have one since. But yeah. in that period, you know, you guys, it seems like the the model was give up and coming directors an opportunity to work on a budget. Yeah. Chris Nolan on Insomnia, Todd Haynes, Far From Heaven. These are major filmmakers, big break films, and the Russo brothers. Yes, exactly. Now I mean, they, they're doing okay. <laughs> they're doing okay. You know, and the, I actually was in their movie, That's in, in Welcome to Collingwood. Yes. So. Well, so then the next of those that you mentioned is Three Kings with David O. Russell, this mm-hmm. cynical captain in the Gulf War. Originally, it was going to be an older guy. I think Clint Eastwood Clint was Eastwood gonna, they were yeah. talking to, yeah. When that was reconsidered, right. why was that one that you fought so hard to get? Mm-hmm. And why was it worth enduring what was insane was insane it was insane yeah. i mean listen <laughs> i get along with david now yeah. we had a very rough time and everyone had a very rough time yeah. with david and david was whatever he was going through yeah. something he's also a brilliant yes. guy brilliantly talented and so sometimes there's eccentricities that i wasn't really in enamored of but i will forever defend how good he is and how brilliant that script was and knowing how what he wanted to do and what that script was, I thought it was really worth fighting for because I thought that was a, a role I could do and I thought it was a story that was, I think it's always interesting to talk in, uh, about sort of the absurdity of war again, you know. But more than anything, it was just a great script, you know, and it's worth fighting for good script. The in between that and O Brother Where Art Thou, which was the third of the three that you mentioned, I just want to acknowledge the, the perfect storm there's significance there because that was the first movie that you opened, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was that's yeah. important, though, for to then just things well, I'll that Well, I'll give you another example. Yeah. In the same way that ER and, and Chicago Hope yeah. happened, we were opening the same weekend as The Patriot with Mel Gibson's movie. Right. And, and again, you, you know this because you've been in this business a long time. The predictors are almost always right. <laughs> They'll say, okay, this is going to open to this and this is going to open to that. They said the page is going to open to twice what we made, and we opened to twice what they made. And I remember I went to a party afterwards with uh, you know Terry Samuel, uh, who was a good friend, and, and, and Bob Daly, and they were toasting me at the Palm Restaurant about the opening. And I stood up and said, listen, this is a movie about a big wave. It's got nothing to do with me. But since I took all the shit for Batman and Robin, I'll take this toast, you know. So it's a, it's a, it was a, it was important for my career the one-two punch of uh, a Perfect Storm and O Brother. And O Brother, which won a Golden Globe for working with the Coens, who that became a recurring thing, and that leads into the part that I guess people I think out in the world assume is what your day-to-day life is like, which would be Danny Ocean in Ocean's Eleven. I know that uh, it's a little more complex nuance than that. (laughs) I think that franchise, certainly uh, the most commercially successful thing that you've been a part of. Do you like working in a big studio kind of situation like that? I know it was actually you guys producing it as well, but still, just the the scale of that, it doesn't seem like you've often chosen to work on that scale. But remember, it's not a scale that was effects heavy or anything else. This right. was a, the scale was just because it's a heist and yes. because there's so many actors in it. What's great about and what was specifically great about that show for us for the three films was that the camaraderie of working with those actors 
actors in general can be selfish. You know, they 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 count lines, or they you know he's going to say that, or they're going to wear that. Or there can be that, and there was a generosity of spirit that basically you could watch Brad Pitt or Matt Damon or Don Cheadle or you know, actively trying to hand the scene to the other person, and because of that, it played very like a breezy, easy thing. For us, it was fun. For Stephen, it was the hardest work he's ever done in his life. You know, people don't, breezy and easy is not breezy and easy to make. Right. You know, but I have to say, it was an incredible pleasure to do them. Well, because basically, that group of people, you and Stephen essentially chose handpicked, right? Yeah. So. Oh yeah, we. I mean, we called up Brad. We you know chased down Don. I'd done some stuff with Don on Out of Sight before, and we'd also done a Failsafe the Live Show yes. together, and. And Don makes everything better. Honestly, he makes every project better. And we followed, uh, called up Julie Roberts. I'd never met her before. And I'd send her a $20 bill. And I said, I hear you get 20 a picture now. <laughs> I heard the only one that got away was Depp. He didn't want to do it? He didn't want to do it. We went to his house to meet with him. And he didn't want to do it. I think we also talked to Wahlberg for a part for a minute, and I don't think he wanted to do it. I worked with, a lot with Mark, and right. a very talented actor, and I think he didn't didn't feel it. And, you know, that's what happens. Yeah. You know, the right person gets the job. It seems like you were thinking like a director for a long time before you became one. You were the advocate for the live episode yeah. of ER. You were the advocate for the live fail-safe, yeah. and on and on and on. But what was it about the script for Confessions of a Dangerous Mind that made you say, this is the one that I want to be my first? Well, interestingly, I was attached as the actor to play that part that I played for a while, and they went through several different directors. And it was used at Warner Brothers as bait to get big directors. All these directors were attached for a minute and wanted to do it because it was a great script. Yeah. And then suddenly it was sort of falling apart and it was literally it sort of sitting there for a few years and it was getting to that spot where it's not going to get made and i knew if i did it and i could bring in drew and julia i could get it made and then it became really clear i called up soderbergh and i said i think i know how to tell this story and i've got an idea of how to do it which was i didn't want to use any sort of visual effects i wanted everything to be in camera so all those shots you see where th things are moving around and it's all done in camera. And I thought, because I'd grown up on a television set where my father would do a talk show and then the set would fly up in the air and there'd be a bowling alley <laughs> underneath it and you'd do bowling for dollars at 3.30 in the afternoon. And so I loved that concept. And I just thought I had an, a take and I just said, listen, you come on board as a producer and if I fuck it up, then then I'll just hand it to you, you know, and you'll take it. And he said, I, well, I'm not going to do that, but yes, you can do it. And he was incredibly helpful. It's funny, he didn't see any of it until until the first real cut. Yeah. He was never on the set or anything because right. he was busy, he was shooting. And the first real cut, I had some really spectacularly wild scenes in it. And he said to me, it's really good, you're going to cut that scene, you're going to cut that <laughs> scene. And I go, no, I'm not, you're, you're an idiot. Yeah. You're an idiot, man, you don't know what you're talking about. And uh, it took me like two months. And then like after two months, I was like, yeah, he's right, of course, I'm going <laughs> to cut those scenes. Well, I think the through line, though, from that first time directing, a film comes out in 2002 through Catch-22, is that you have been willing, maybe almost enthusiastic about not playing the lead in something you direct, mm -hmm. play a key supporting part that enables you to give somebody who's probably a little, not unknown, but lesser known, mm -hmm. an opportunity to have a shot that they deserve but might not have otherwise gotten. So in that case, Sam Rockwell, 
Good Night and Good Luck, which we'll come to, David Strathairn, yeah. now Christopher Abbott. Yeah. How much of that is just logistically, as the director, you don't have the bandwidth to also play the lead, as opposed to seeing that these guys deserve a shot? Well, I mean, think about it this way. You know, you got to get the right person in the right role. Confessions is a tricky movie. Confessions is sort of like a Jack Nicholson movie where you're taking a character, like in, uh, in Carnal Knowledge, you're taking a character that is doing despicable things, despicable yeah. things, <laughs> and you still have to root for him. Yeah. And I remember I worked with Sam with the, with the Russo brothers on Welcome to Collingwood, mm-hmm. and I'd seen him in like the Green Mile where he spits on Tom Hanks, and you still like him. He's still funny. And he was this character, he was, he was a character actor, a leading man in a character actor body, or the other way around. Yeah. Uh, he was, he, he, you, you rooted for him. It, it, he's a wonderful actor, but he also has a quality that you root for. And I thought, well, that is, that's our guy. You know, he's perfect. He personifies it. And that can save you as a director a lot of issues. You don't have to work as hard. Because right. you just go... Maybe thirty percent less, and they go got it. And he was great. And that's the same thing with with you know when you hire David and and Chris. It's really, you know, it's people that are capable of making you care about them. So Confessions comes out in two thousand two, and I think in two thousand three is when the Iraq War starts blowing up. And you, I think, to your immense credit, especially in hindsight, were very ahead of the game and outspoken about it. But it was not a fun position to be in at the time, I know. And so I wonder if you can just share what was going on that was so upsetting to you and how much did that have to do with the fact that the next two movies that really made a big impact, which came out both in 2005, Suriana and Good Night and Good Luck, how driven were they by what you were feeling yourself? So we were leading up to the war and it was pretty clear we were going in and everyone was shockingly silent. The news organizations were shockingly silent. Senators and congressmen were shockingly silent. We were watching this buildup happen, you know, and understanding that the most important thing you can do is question your government. That's why our government, that's how we've been designed. That's our job. That's your job as a reporter. That's uh, my job as a citizen. And suddenly it wasn't just you're either with us or against us. It's you're with us or you're with the enemy. Mm-hmm. And in this town... There was a handful of us, and I mean, it was only a handful, because I'd have the biggest directors in town come up and whisper to me, you know, I agree with you. And I'm like, why are you whispering? Why aren't we yelling this from the rooftop? And they were, you know, they picketed the movie in in New York and stuff. But the funniest part of this, this is a funny Bill O'Reilly story. Yes. Do you know anything about this? Well, I know he's an asshole. Well, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he's, yeah. A, he's a, a jerk, and he loves a, a loofah on himself while you know, <laughs> using a vibrating <laughs> instrument on himself while he's sexually harassing an employee. But other yes, than that, other than that, and settled for you know several million dollars. Forty. But more fun than that was he did a whole show about how anti-American I was, and you know all this stuff. I had a, a, a peace flag hanging over my house, and he was saying, "Why it is?" I was on a red carpet, and somebody came out and said, "Why? What do you mean by that?" And I went, "Peace." Yes. <laughs> Such a horrible <laughs> thing. And he did this whole show about how my career is over, and he brought some producer on. Who was like, "I'll never work with them again." <laughs> so I'll preface this story by saying, night before the Oscars, when Michael Moore won the Oscar and yes. sort of went batshit crazy. Right. I get a call from Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins, who I've met a couple of times, and I like them very much. 
And they said, we're meeting at the Bellagio Hotel. I want, we want to have a conversation. They'd been very outspoken yeah. about the war. They'd marched against it in England and stuff. So I show up, and I walk into this room. And in the room is Don Cheadle, Eddie Vedder, uh-huh. Woody Harrelson, Gore Vidal, <laughs> Michael Moore, and myself. Now, I've never been to the Oscars in my life because I figure you go when you're nominated. You don't just show up, right? And we, we're in this room, and I'm sitting there, and they're like, we want to have a conversation about what we're going to do tomorrow at the Oscars. These were all people who were outspoken against the war. Right. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, you know, I'm, they're all talking about what they want to do, and I, they all had ideas, and Michael basically said he's going to, you know, go crazy, I think. And, <laughs> but we had this conversation and I said well you know I would think if you win you say something if, you, if you're presenting maybe not I don't know it's up to you it's everybody has their right to do it that's you know that's that's the way this works so anyway you cut to a few months later and Bill O'Reilly's got this show you know, why George Clooney's career is over and he's trying to organize all these boycotts and stuff against me and brings on the producer says she'll never work with me I've never heard of this producer you know, it doesn't matter it's it's all fine and then he says I think it was like it was like a Chicago a review. I can't remember who it was on the show. And he's clearly not buying fully Bill O'Reilly's right, story. And, right. and he says, uh, you know how these these Hollywood lefties are, you know, they're getting together and they're planning this out. And they're doing this. And I'm watching the show with Grant. Right. We were in, in we were doing uh, K Street at the mm-hmm. time in, in Washington and I'm watching the show. And he goes, you know how they are. They get together and flash. And the, the, the critic goes, now, Bill, think about what you're saying. Do you really think that, like, the night before the Oscars, a bunch of these lefties <laughs> get in a room <laughs> and talk about what they're going to do with it? Yeah, and he goes, yeah, you're probably not. And I looked that at Grant and I was like, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> All your paranoia well, is actually true. I think, Bill, uh, I think the career trajectory since then uh, speak for themselves. But so Syriana, though, it's dealing with the Middle East. It's dealing with yeah. some of the things that people, you know, oil that may or may not have propelled us into mm-hmm. Iraq. You... Let's just remind people, grew a beard, put on 30 pounds, shaved your hairline. <laughs> you look terrible. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and then, actually, that probably didn't help when you had a pretty serious, a pretty serious accent. Yeah. But, you know, what was important about that film was, and, and there are flaws in the film. It's a, there are things I'm really enormously proud of, and there are things that, that are flawed in the film. But what was important was to try to actually, at a time, and remember, this is a very brave thing for Warner Brothers to do in t- 2000. Five, to put a face on two young men who become terrorists and to understand how you create them. And it, it isn't just evildoers, right? There is a, there's a process, and that process comes about through their lives being miserable along the way and how that happens. And not that it's right, but how that we're all complicit in all of these stories. It not, it's not just that. And I thought that was important to make. Good night and good luck I wrote because I was mad about being called a traitor to my country. And I, was, and I thought about the last time that I felt that the fourth estate had abdicated its duty. And I looked back at McCarthy era at the, at the same point, and when they also picked up the mantle and took it. And it was important to, to focus on the, the idea that there's, without, when the other three estates fail, the fourth estate must not. You know. And I think additionally, it must have been a poignant one for you to do because of the fact that your dad was also a newsman well, around it was, not that it, long it, after. it was important to do that. I remember when they were picketing one of the, the movies, and I called my dad and I said, you know, am I in trouble? And he goes, you got any money? And I go, yeah, I'm okay. He goes, shut up. He goes, <laughs> you know, you can't demand 
freedom of speech and then say, but don't say bad things about me. Right. You know, if, you, if this is how you want to do it, which I'm proud of, right. then stick your chin out and take it. One of my favorite stories I came upon doing as, you know, as much prep as I could for this was, I don't remember which movie it was, but your dad made a cameo in it. You show him the print. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you share what yeah. was at the end? It was, it was, the, it was Monuments Men, and yeah. he's going to play me as an old man. And yes. I said, Papa, yeah. first of all, you got one line. Right. You just have to say the word, yeah. Right. And first of all, he's hand-boning it up like you can't believe. <laughs> and like, he's, like, he's like Charlton Heston, like, right. yeah. Like, like, Pop, just say, yeah. He's like, yeah, got it. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, he does it. And... and and so we shoot it, and it's he's walking. It's supposed to be me 30 years later, and he's walking with his grandson holding his hand. He walks off into the light, and he sort of disappears. So we do the first screening at the house in Italy. We're at the house in Italy. My mom and dad come, and I'm ready to show it to him. And he sees himself say, yeah, and he does his thing, and he walks off into the light. And the first credit that rolls up is in loving memory of Nick Clooney. <laughs> And he's like, what the hell? I'm like, hey, Pop, you know, you never know. I go, it's so much, it's so much easier to take it out than it is to put it in. That was great. So now, as you said, you hadn't gone to the Oscars until you got yeah. the call. Now you got the call for both Syriana and Good Night and Good Luck in the same year. Supporting actor, ultimately winning supporting actor for Syriana, nominated for writing, directing, everything for Good Night and Good Luck. What did the Oscars mean to you and how do you see their function for the industry because that was the beginning of basically a period of about seven eight years where you were there every other year so what that first one in particular though where you won i think that what gets lost in all of the sort of people talking about slapping everybody on the back and stuff is particularly for films like good night and good luck we shot that for six million dollars it's very hard for a studio to understand that they're going to spend only $6 million on a movie, but they're going to spend $30 million on an ad campaign. Right. It doesn't make sense to spend more on the ads than it does. And what changes that equation is the Oscars for films like that. Same thing with Michael Clayton. Yeah. You know, the same thing in some ways with Up in the Air and Descendants. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to get those kind of films because they're, they're shot for $17 million, which sounds like a lot, but it's not in the studio world. It's, it's a, a pittance. Right. And it's very hard to get the studios to, to get behind it. But remembering that everyone at the studios, they love to do the big movies that make a lot of money. They also want to put a tux on at the yes. end of the year. And so they want to have something that they can do that for. Right. And so I've done my Batman. You know, yeah. I've done my big sort of that kind of movie. I really didn't want to do those kind of films anymore. I wasn't very good at them, clearly. So I wanted to work on projects that I thought were, that would last longer than an opening weekend. Yeah. Well, for those others that I mentioned just in that run, if, if we can just quickly touch on each of them, because mm -hmm. they're each one excellent, each one another, in this case, best actor Oscar nomination. So let's start with Michael Clayton, mm -hmm. the fixer in, I was going to say, Michael rename Cohen. Michael Cohen. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. People keep calling Michael Cohen yeah. the fixer. I'm like, I'm the fixer, They're man. The fixer, exactly. I'm the fixer. Uh, this one was going to be your verdict, Unforgiven, that yeah. kind of a gritty. Yeah. But you had to be convinced about Tony Gilroy, who really sure. hadn't done it, right? Right. Well, I mean, he's a first-time director, yeah. you know, and that's a, this is a really good piece of material Tony wrote. Yeah. And... Stephen was there, you know, which is also important, yep. a really sure hand to have Stephen around. But Tony was a very capable director and did a really good job. But it did take a little convincing. You know, honestly, I'd worked with a few first-time directors, and I'd had tough times. Yep. So, you know. Yeah. Just 
follow up on that one. Final scene, back of the taxi, camera stays on you for two full minutes. Yeah. What were you thinking? Well, think about it this way. If you started the movie with that shot, it'd be the most boring shot in, <laughs> in film history. It's sort of that Rorschach test where everybody gets to put on Project to me yeah. what they think. The funniest part was we stole that shot in New York City, like in the middle of the afternoon. So we got lights around the cab, being towed, and people are just driving up next to me. It's, the, the windows are blocked out. They're just driving next to me going, Hey, George Clooney! Hey, George Clooney! Hey, what's going on? What are you doing? So mostly, all I'm trying to do is not laugh. Right. Really, truly. Because it... And, you know, we shot it, and I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, can you seal off the road? But the beauty of it is that because of the way the story was told, right. that everybody gets to play out what they feel. Yes. And that's... That's Smart. good filmmaking. Yeah. You know. Ryan Bingham, a man who fires people for a living in Up in the Air. The New York Times wrote, quote, a more effective showcase for his skills would be hard to imagine. His, of course, you. And Jason Reitman, coming off of Juno, said, quote, I knew by casting George it's going to get a certain response, having a guy who is a lifelong bachelor in real life playing a lifelong bachelor on the screen who then falls in love and has that love taken away from him. So there's connective tissue between the actor and the role that made that movie a little more interesting, close quote. What made it appealing to you? It's funny. I met Jason a couple times before, and he said, I've got an idea. He came, he flew out to Italy. It was in the summer, and I was having a, a, a three-week vacation there. And he showed up with the script. And, I, and he said, I want you to read this. And I was like, okay. And then I said, I'm not going to read it right now. Right. And then he's like, okay. So I said, well, let's go hang out. We'll play some basketball, and we'll go by the pool, and it's vacation time. And then that night I went upstairs and read it. And I came down, and I sat down, and I said, yeah, I'll do it. It, <laughs> it. It's a beautifully written script. He's a really talented guy and somebody I really greatly admire. And it was fun to work with him. And it did feel a little, I, I knew exactly where we were going with that. I knew that there would be the comparisons to my real life. As inaccurate as some of it is, like people think I'm Danny Ocean, you know, <laughs> and think that, I remember I saw Jerry Seinfeld yeah. at, a, at a party and Jerry, came up to me and goes, do you work? I mean, do you ever really work? And I was like, are you crazy? And he goes, no, I just think like everything's so easy for you. And I was like, Jerry, I work like six yeah. days a week. I mean, I really work hard. And so I think part of it is that, that in general, like in Up in the Air, people think that that just kind of comes easily. And I'm like, that's not actually who I am, <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, that's, yeah. that's your job is to make it look a little less like work. Yeah, that's great. You know? Matt King, a man forced to do some thinking <laughs> while his wife is in a coma and he is taking care of his two daughters in Alexander Payne's The Descendants. I know that you held him in a high regard even before that because I think there was some discussion that maybe the part that Thomas Hayden Church ended up playing, you were going to play in yeah, sideways. Yeah, that fucker. <laughs> yeah, that fucker. No, I met with Alexander for that. And we went to a little restaurant. We sat and talked for a long time about it. And then, you know, after that, he called him and said, yeah, you're not right. For, for what I'm thinking. And I was like, okay. I was happy to meet him. Yeah. And then I was in Toronto doing uh, press for something. And he was there and he said, I've got, you know, I've got a movie for us. And I read it and I thought, I can't believe my luck. In the same way, like when the Coen brothers sent me, oh brother, where I thought, I can't be believe my luck that, mm -hmm. that a director that I admire as much as I admire and a person, I mean, we're very good friends now. He just had a kid, too. At, at the, we're the same age, so, you know, we're both <laughs> idiots. Um, we're both old men. But 
Alexander, in general, when he handed me the script, I just I couldn't believe my luck. What do you learn when you work with a director like that that you can apply to your own directing? Is there something well, specific? Yeah, you learn it from the really good directors. And I would put Soderbergh up there. I would put Joel and Ethan, obviously, up there. I would put Jason Reitman up there. I would, and I would put Alexander up there. They all shoot with a point of view. They don't gather footage and go into an editing room and figure out what their story is. They commit to a point of view and they stick to it. And that's why those films, whether you like them or not, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. What I love about them is they swing big because they said, this is whose eyes you're going to watch the story through. Right. And that's a really good lesson and was a very good lesson for me as a director and something that I constantly you know, even when we were doing Catch-22 and I was talking with Grant and Ellen, I, we, all we kept, constantly kept talking about was point of view. Make sure that this is through, through Yossarian's point of view. I remember being up at Telluride the, for the first screening of Descendants, yeah. and I think you had, it seemed like you had a fun time there because yeah. I don't know how many other places you can go where you can kind of just walk around. Walk around. Yeah. But the big chatter coming out of that was, I don't know if we've seen... George Clooney go emotionally in a role to the place where you go at the end of that movie where you're saying goodbye to your wife. And so I wonder if you can just share, you know, it it feels like it was a different kind of thing than we'd seen you do before. Where do you go mentally to draw something like that? Well, honestly, the reality is that it was in the script. I mean, when you say those lines, my love, my wife, my, you know, anger, my fear, I can't remember what it was, but it's a beautiful line. And and that's sort of not so hard to get to. You know, I don't have to play Cat Stevens' father and son to, like, you know, <laughs> tear up when you got to... And, and, and Alexander was so gentle as a director in those moments. And the young lady who played my dying wife, who didn't have a single line, was actually really wonderful. And, you know, and, and Judy Greer is spectacular in that scene. So, it, you know, I, I really had a very... It was such a welcoming you know i did i did one of the, these round tables once with directors and it was and ang lee was there on the, on the round table with me and i don't remember which film i directed or which one ang had at that point but we were both on the thing and he said you know i don't want my actors to ever feel safe or comfortable i want them to be on edge which is his style and i said well i'll never work with you as an actor <laughs> we just have different styles right. I feel that a lot of really good work comes when people feel safe. And and it's just different styles, right? Alexander makes you feel very safe. About the same time that movie was coming out, you and Grant, were, who, again, are along the way, formed this producing company, Smokehouse, mm-hmm. were producing a movie called Argo. Grant has said, quote, we were going to find a director and maybe George was going to be in it, depending on who the director was. And while we were making Ides of March, we got a call from the studio saying that Ben Affleck had read it and was really interested in directing it and possibly being in it, close quote. So the film, and therefore you were producers and mm-hmm. wound up winning the Best Oscar, Picture Oscar. Yeah. Does any part of you Regret look back and say, not plan- no. I would have liked to play it? No, because first of all, you got to remember, I was really deeply ensconced in Ides of March, which I am immensely proud of. You yes. know, we, we watched it the other day on TV again, and uh, Ryan Gosling is fantastic. Phil and Phil uh, Hoffman and Paul Giamatti are spectacular in it. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Wright. It's a, it's a project that uh, Evan Rachel Wood. It's a project that we watch, and I go, couldn't be more proud of that film. And Argo was a lot of work, you know, for us. It was a lot of work for us, but. Ben brought, you know, it was goofier, the script was. And Ben had a really interesting take, which was, I think this should be more dangerous, which he was absolutely right. And once he took a crack at that and said, let's make this 
a lot scarier than it was, than the script was. Immediately you go, well, he's the right guy to tell the story. You know, the right person does these things, yeah. you know, and that was one where there wasn't a moment I looked back and thought, God, I wish I directed it because I wouldn't have done it, it the same and it certainly wouldn't have been as good. Did he ask you anything about before doing Batman? <laughs> I actually did. I did talk to him about yeah. it. Yeah, I said, "Don't do it." <laughs> well, it well, no. Right. I, 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 and I, it was only from my experience, which is right. that you know, Ben has had one of those careers. In a way, we have very similar careers, which it's been you know, there's been highs and lows, and highs and lows, ups and downs, and that's good. You know, yeah. you, you, no one's trajectory is a straight line up. You know, and he worked in his way back from actor jail. You know, which happens when you yeah. do. When I do Batman and Robin yeah. and when he does... Geely. <laughs> yeah, Geely. Yeah, sure. So it's that, right? He gets to that moment, and I thought, don't don't give him something to fire off on you. Well, he, he, he did great, though. He and you fun. both seem to really understand the business side of the business as yeah. well, and it's interesting. But Gravity, I know you and Sandra Bullock went way back. Quaron, we know. Yeah. If people didn't know back then, they certainly know now what, what he's capable of. Sure. But that seems like another thing that there wasn't much precedent for in the sense that, as I understand it, most of what is around you was added in after you yeah. did what you had to do. So what are you acting opposite? Well, it was interesting, actually more than you could imagine because there was all these LED lights. So you actually had things to look at to keep up with because we're being spun and the camera's being spun mm -hmm. inside this sort of globe where you have to be able to see where the sun is and where the, the, the spaceship is. And you have to, so constantly moving around, it's, it's, it's a pretty fascinating process and something that, much of the technology wasn't developed by the time we started and was being developed as we as went. But, you know, Alfonso's a, he still makes, it's a huge film, but he's, it's still a small film. You know, it's still a story. He's still just telling a story. It was an interesting process all the way around because everyone thought it was a disaster. Really? We went to the test screen and, and the test screen was really tough because there were not many effects in. So you could see the puppeteers holding up things and you could see strings. And and so the test screening at Warner Brothers, I think it tested like 25 in the top two boxes and there was huge panic. Mm -hmm. I mean, huge panic. And then they worked it and did some more tests, but it never really, it was never finished in time to give it a full test. So the studio was very nervous, panicked, quite honestly, about what was going to happen. In fact, they sold off part of it to Rat Pack people not long before it opened. And we went to Venice, to the Venice Film Festival. And I hadn't seen it finished. And Alfonso was there. And he was like, I'm broke. You know, I've been working for two years on this thing. I have to. Yeah. And I was like, do some commercials. Right. I, you know, you can direct right. me and make some money. I'll help you out. Right. We went to the premiere in Venice. Now, Venice is not a place for a 3D movie. No. And it was mesmerizing and polarizing, and everyone was just stunned by it. And I walked out later, and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You're going to be fine, man. You're going to be yeah, just fine. had a good five years since then, five, yeah. six years. Yeah. Okay, so when you left ER, I don't imagine you ever thought you would one day choose to return to TV based on the way that things were at the time. Things right. have obviously changed a lot of, in sure. the media since then. Talk, if you can, about just how you now regard TV and and why, when you wanted to get involved with Catch-22, 
that was the place for this. Right. Okay, well, first of all, TV has changed, obviously, spectacularly, starting sort of with The Sopranos. In a, yeah. in a, in a, I would point to that as sort of a real turning point where you could use language, you could use nudity, you could use violence, you could tell stories that were, you know, more risky. Mm -hmm. But the streaming services have blown that the, the hinges off. But there's, I mean, you know, watch the, the first season of Narco and, yeah. and tell me there's anything you've seen better, you know, on television. I mean, it's just, it, it's a completely different form. Now, the other thing that's happened is, in this sort of weird balance that happens is, the studios are less and less making the kind of films, the kind of stories that I like mid range budget mid range or even small right. budget you know no one would make you know Warner Brothers isn't going to make Good Night and Good Luck now they were not going to make uh, Michael Clayton quite honestly now so it's going to end up at Hulu or Netflix or Amazon or Apple or one of those places the beauty of this one is that this is a tough nut to crack right this is one of the, famously one of the toughest nuts ever to crack mm -hmm. and it couldn't be done in a two-hour movie. Mike Nichols talked about it all the time. I think he said he was giving birth to a, a, a stillborn child right. or something. He was right. like, it's a really hard piece to crack. In six episodes, you can get to know the characters. And if you get to know them when they die, it matters. And only could you do that on a, in a streaming service like In a limited series format. Yeah. So you guys produced this through Smokehouse. You were originally going to do most of the directing and play... Catcart, uh, cart, mm -hmm. which would have been the second biggest part. It, in the way it wound up, you, Grant, and Ellen Curris each directed two installments, and you played Schleskov, right. which is a smaller but still an important part. Mm -hmm. What caused the change? Well, there was two things that happened. First was that it was really evident that executive producing in television is all the work, right? It's a lot, because we're in the editing bay all day. I was in the editing bay every single day for yes. five months. Where when you're shooting, you're on the set the whole time. We were, this was all cross-boarded, so that meant that in a in a day, in a given day, Ellen Grant and I are sitting there. It could be all right. Now we're in episode six. Okay, now we're in episode four. Now we're in episode two. So it's just bounce, 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 bounce. It became very clear that it was going to be impossible to play a part that big and to direct and produce. Impossible. And I thought Shyskoff is still a great part, and I thought I could do it. Yes. More important is I would never have been as good as Kyle Chandler is. He's just, I mean, spectacular, and it's such a turn for him. Also, you know, it was going to be, I was going to direct four, and Grant was going to direct two of them. And I was like, well, why, don't, why aren't we having a woman's perspective in this as a director? Particularly for this story, right? For this story. I think it, I think it made it more interesting to be able to say, well, you know, it's tricky because... It takes place in 1944, so it's a bunch of guys. Mm -hmm. And it felt as if we should be making this a, a modern take by not changing the material, but changing, again, the point of view. Right. Well, you've done films, you've done TV series. I don't think, if, as I can recall, there was a limited series ever. Mm -hmm. So in this format, how does it work in, in terms of, are you shooting on one day parts of episode two and parts of sure. episode five, and how do you like working that way? I mean, that's a different thing, right? Well, it's also a tricky thing because it's three directors. So we have three director's chairs right. set up around a monitor, and let's say we start off the morning and it's gonna be Grant doing something from episode five where you know Chris is in an explosion, yeah. right? So he's gotta shoot that sequence, what he's got to shoot in that location, knowing that we need that location post-explosion, right. so Ellen's going to have to shoot something after that, and then we're going to shoot something on the next on the same set that I need. We did that 
probably more than half the time, we all three shot scenes on the same day in the same location. So you also have a responsibility to the other directors not to take too long, not to screw around, to be very judicious with the kind of shots you want to do. All three are always on call. All, All three were always there. Wow. I mean, there was not a moment that we weren't there. So the bottom line question, I guess, is why, I mean, Catch-22, I guess when Nichols first did it, it was like 1970 or something. 1970. I think there was a TV movie version at one point that yeah. I'm not sure how. I think it was with Richard Dreyfuss. I think it was a pilot. Yes, yes, yeah, a pilot. Yeah. Why is it a story that is important to revisit in 2019? Well, first of all, it is a classic novel. And, and second of all, I think that there hasn't been a full, fair version of that novel yeah. yet. The screenplays were great. The teleplays were great. And I thought they were really good. I also think it's a, you know, if you look back over my career and things I've worked on, I like to talk about the absurdity of war, the absurdity of bureaucracy and and red tape. I think it's always an interesting thing to get in and, and remind ourselves that if it ever becomes normal that people make decisions and young people die, then we're in a terrible place. I also feel like how absurd this is reminds us of how absurd our time is in the world you know if you look all around the world you know today go through, you mean, yeah. today, yeah. Go through yeah. italy hungry brazil look at the authoritarianism in in, in the philippines and then look or to the united backyard, states yeah. of course <laughs> so mike pompeo and, and john bolton just said that not only will we not honor anything with the international criminal court but we'll pull their passports and arrest them i mean the International Criminal Court. I mean, that's absurd, right. right? So I feel like it's always good to be able to say, well, let's never make this normal. Right. And I felt like this is a perfect version of it in the same way that going back to Murrow was a way of pointing sort of it to the, you know, the lack of hard work by journalists yes. in the lead up to the war. With the last minute, I wonder if we can just sort of the first thing that comes to your mind okay. uh, about something. I know you don't, You've made a point, of, you know, you don't like to complain about the downsides of the fame that yeah, comes yeah. with this. You've said you, people don't want to hear about it from a guy who seems to, appears to have everything. Yeah. But what do you miss most about anonymity? And do you ever question if it was worth giving it up for this? Well, no, because I, I have a pretty good life, right? And I have a beautiful wife and two beautiful kids, and I get to work on things I want to work on. And I have to say, most people don't get to do that. So I'm well aware of it. There are things you miss because, you know, the kind of fame that sort of hit me was it was a very different kind of fame than movie stars. Mm-hmm. I was in people's, I was in 40 million people's bedrooms, mm-hmm. and they could make you talk or not talk with the remote. And so they knew me personally. Like, the, you know, I'd get off a plane with Julia Roberts and they'd all whisper, Julia Roberts, Julia Roberts. <laughs> and then they'd see me and they're like, George, and they grab you and scratch your head, you know. <laughs> so, so as much as that's enjoyable and the people are very kind to me, it does take away, it, it's the kind where going to a ball game and sitting with the gang isn't really possible. And uh, it's distracting for everybody else and not necessarily fun for me. I miss some of that. I miss wa- uh, my wife and I wanted to walk in th- our kids in Central Park. And that's just not possible. And so what would happen if you. Well, we tried, yeah. you know, yeah, we walk out the door and everybody surrounds them. And, and there's a bounty on my kid's head for a photo. And uh, and so that's something that we are very conscious of. It, it's it, everything changes when you have two kids on how you have to, you know, you have to protect them. My wife is taking the first case 
against ISIS, you know, to court, we have plenty of uh, issues, Already, real yeah. proper security issues that we have to deal with on a fairly daily basis. We don't really want our kids to be targets, you know. So we have to pay attention to that. But, you know, we also live our lives. We're yes. not, uh, we don't hide in corners. And you mentioned that there's this difference between, you know, most people who have become stars on TV have not been able to then become stars on, on film. It hasn't, there are mm. not many examples. Why were you able to make that transition? I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm scrappy. <laughs> I just never sort of take no for an answer. There were plenty of moments that probably should have ended my career, <laughs> starting early on and, you know, baby talk right. and, you know, some of those series I did. I think somehow I've been lucky. I mean, look, I, I really do think luck has played a huge part in it. If you were starting out today, could mm -hmm. you become the same blend of both actor and star in the sense that, like, mm -hmm. they're not, are they, as you say, the films, the same kinds of films that you kind of made your name with are not necessarily yeah. being made? And well, it'd be oh, different. I was lucky enough to be part of sort of the end of that sort of era of filmmaking. And that was a really exciting time. But I, I'm actually excited of what you can see sort of in, you know, there's a lot of work out there now for actors. So I'm excited to see what young actors are, are doing. There's a lot more work than there was when I was a young actor. But I don't know, you know, it's, again, it's, you know, Scott, here's the thing. Anybody who thinks that they're a genius and got somewhere because they're so brilliant, is an idiot, right? It, there's so many factors that have to happen. You have to have a show that gets picked up on a night that's been a historically great night, and the show has to be great. You need all these things to happen that have nothing to do with me. If there's a film course 50 years from today and they can devote one day to George Clooney's career, along with a screening of just one film, mm. to try to understand, you know, explain this is what he's about, which would you want that film to be? Good night and good luck. And lastly, you said recently, quote, I'm not going to do movies just to be in front of the camera. I did that for a long time and I had a good run. And as you get older, the parts aren't as interesting. I'm not a leading man anymore. Nobody wants to see me kiss the girl, close quote. <laughs> I was surprised to see you say that because I don't know that that audiences actually agree with that. But if that is your position, what does the future hold for you? And what would you be doing today if your cousin had not Said to come out here. Well, I probably, I would, I don't know, probably selling insurance somewhere. I was, I don't know. I, I actually was a door-to-door -door insurance salesman for a period of time. I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. I thought I was going to go into probably local broadcasting because I was interested in that in my father's unit. I feel as if the models of the career that I'd like to have, people like Paul Newman. Mm -hmm. And the reason is not that I'm comparing myself to Paul Newman, just the way he dealt with it, which is, you know, he turned 55 or something and he does the verdict and his version of it is, okay, now I'm a character actor and now the parts are different and I'll do smaller parts and I, I'm really comfortable with that. He directed a lot, I like to direct, he had, d did a lot of philanthropic work, which yeah. is sort of, I would say probably 50% of my time is spent, you know, chasing warlords and their money and, yeah, and, 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 for and, all and, and all this thing. It was even fun, this last thing with the Sultan of Brunei was fun, so, you know. Yeah. Because it's a, you know, it's fun to pick good fights. And so your life changes in a way and your interests change. And, you know, I would rather see Chris Abbott kissing the girl than me. So, <laughs> and I think everybody else would. He, he looks very good naked, that kid. Well, so, he's you know. the same age you were when you did ER. Yeah, he is. I mean, I, I think this is going to be a big time for him. Well, thank you for doing this. I can't tell you how much I appreciate well, it. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it. It's a good interview. Thank you. 
Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.